evening. Uh, tonight's Bible reading will be from 1 Timothy. Uh, we're at our tail end of our series in 1 Timothy. So it's just a sum up of, or pretty much a final charge, I guess, uh, that Paul gives to Timothy. So 1 Timothy is in the New Testament, uh, sandwiched between 2 Timothy and 0 Timothy. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians. Oof. How embarrassing. Okay, so chapter 6, starting at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been trusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, good evening. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Obviously, uh, you got to, to be, hear me be interviewed, but if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you over supper uh, after tonight's service. Uh, so please stick around for that. Uh, heads up, every week or most weeks here at 6pm Church, we have a, a question and answer time. Uh, and so if you have any questions of tonight's sermon, feel free uh, to text your question uh, into the number that will be up on the screen. Um, Specifically, we're studying the book of 1 Timothy. That's why Nick wrote out to, uh, sorry, read out to us the end of 1 Timothy. And this is the last talk on our series titled Shipwrecked. Before I dig into it, though, I'm going to pray. And so I'd love it if you'd pray with me before we kick off. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the book of 1 Timothy. Lord, we thank you for this term and how we've been able to study it and apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, there's so much stuff here for us to learn and to apply. And it teaches us so much about you. And Lord, we just pray as we come to it right now that you help us to sit under your word and to want to apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you reveal yourself to us so that we may love you, worship you, and live like your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, years ago, um, I defeated this schoolboy or little boy in a running race up a set of stairs. And it was one of the most glorious moments of my life. 
Now, you're probably thinking, Joel, I thought you were a bit weird, but this is incredibly weird. Like, it's a little boy. Like, come on. Like, why was a glorious moment in your life? Well, let me give you some context. These stairs were no ordinary stairs. You see, these stairs that I was racing this little kid up were the stairs of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And when I got up to the top of these stairs, I was putting my hands up in the air and running around in circles and going crazy. And the reason why that was the case, and that was one of the most glorious moments of my life, was because those stairs are the same stairs that Rocky Balboa ran up in each of his movies in his montage with Eye the Tiger in the background as he prepares for his fights. You see, on that day, I got to be like Rocky. It was an awesome privilege. And see, the truth is, I confess this to you, I love the Rocky movies. Like, I think they're awesome. They're incredibly predictable, but they're awesome. You see, the truth is, is I love Rocky movies or any movies like that. I like or enjoy watching boxing or wrestling or UFC, for example. And you might think that's a little bit weird, but truth be told, I'm not the only person that enjoys these movies or watching people fight one another. Let me give you an example. The 2015 fight between Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao, I can never say his name. Anyway, it was one of the most anticipated sporting events in history. I think it's the most watched pay-per-view event in all of history. It was a moment that stopped time, I suppose, for that year in 2015. Or if you think of UFC, which today is one of the biggest sports in the world, and roughly on average, one and a half billion people tune in to watch a UFC main event. Which begs the question, why is boxing, why is UFC, why is fighting in general popular? Like, why do people like to watch other people fight? You know, why do I like watching Rocky Balboa? Or or let me give you another example. Why do people watch WWE wrestling? Um, Like, so, for example, Mark Roberts. If you don't know who Mark is, uh, he's another pastor here at our church. He's a nice guy, but he's not here, so I'm going to insult him. Um, He is currently having a week off for his birthday, and he's going into Sydney to watch wrestling, to watch men fight each other, and it's all fake, completely fake, but he loves it. He's fully into it. even has wrestling parties. You know, why are people weird like Mark? And why are people weird like me? Why do we like watching people fight one another? Well, I've got a quote from you, for you from a guy called Dana White, who is the president of UFC. And this is his response to this question. He says, everyone loves a fight. It's in our DNA. The example I like to use is that if you're in, the, in an intersection and there's a basketball game on one corner, a soccer game on another, a baseball game on the third, and a fight on the fourth, everyone will go watch the fight. And that's not only true, but it's something that cuts across all demographic and geographic barriers. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that quote or I listen to that quote, I feel a bit uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable because I don't fully agree with it, but then I also don't fully disagree with it. You see, I don't know how, if you've thought about this, but when you think of the word fighting or, or a fight, I don't know if you think, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I think if we think of the bully in the playground, we think, yeah, fighting's bad. Or we think of wars and how people have died, and we think, yeah, fighting's bad. But then we think of superheroes who are trying to save the day and save those who can't fight for themselves. And then all of a sudden we start to realize, you know what, fighting all the time is not always bad, but actually can be a good thing and a needed and necessary thing. When it comes specifically to our faith in God, fighting is a good thing. 
It's, it's a metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses specifically in 1 Timothy a few times. He begins the book in chapter 1 and he ends it in chapter 6 by talking about how we had to fight for our faith. Fight for our faith. In 1 Timothy 6.12, as Nick read out to us, the Apostle Paul says this. It's his main thrust to this passage. He says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. If you remember the first sermon I did on 1 Timothy 1, the big question I had was, how do we avoid a shipwrecked faith? And the solution was to fight sin, to fight falsehood, and to fight for your faith. The Apostle Paul starts his letter this way, and he ends it this way with a final charge to Timothy and to us, that if we want to avoid a shipwrecked faith, then we need to fight for it. Which begs the question, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we practically fight the good fight of the faith? Well, that's the big question that we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to find the answer in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 21. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the Apostle Paul is going to, I guess, teach us three things or tell us three things to help us answer this question of how do we fight the good fight. And the three things he's going to talk about is, firstly, he's going to give us instructions on on how to fight practically. Secondly, he's going to talk about motivations as to why we should fight. And thirdly, he's going to give us an example on how to fight the good fight of the faith. And so, with all that in mind, let's dig into this text and let's learn how to fight the good fight of the faith. And let me read to us 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 12 again. It should come up on the screen. And so, this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, But you, man of God... Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, For those who don't know, I have two boys. I have one that is two and one that is four. And almost every afternoon, one thing we do is wrestle. We always wrestle. And so as soon as I get home, Eli's like, can we wrestle that? I'm like, okay, sure thing. And the way it works is uh, what we do is we go to the bed because it's bigger. It's a better arena. Um, And what happens without fault is all of us have to take our shirts off and all of us have to flex before we start wrestling. (laughs) It's just part of the deal, part of the package. And it's just what happens. And then I get pummeled. They smash me. And I feel like my job as a father is to teach my boys how to fight well. You know, like how do brothers fight well? You know, like no pinching, no biting, no punching in the face. You know, like how to teach them how to wrestle. Like currently, Eli's pretty good. Isaac, he's terrible. Like his one move is to run at me with his head uh, like a rhino. I'm trying to work on that. But I feel like my job as a father is to teach them how to fight. Here in this passage, the first few verses, Paul does the same thing. He gives us practical tips on what it looks like to fight the good fight of the faith. And he gives us three quick tips. He says to us that we need to flee, we need to pursue, and we need to take hold. We need to flee, need to pursue, need to take hold. Like if you've got a Bible, open it up, keep it open at verse 11. He says this, he says, But you, man of God, flee from all this. Now what is all this? What's he talking about? Well, if you hear last week, you'll know that the Apostle Paul talked about these false teachers. These false teachers who are ignorant, who are arrogant, who are causing conflict to people, and who had a love for money. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, look, you're a true teacher, not a false teacher. Flee from all these things. Flee from all these things. You see, if we want to be a man of God or a woman of God like Timothy, even though he's not a woman, but can you get my point? 
We need to perfect the art of fleeing. We need to perfect the art of fleeing. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone says to me, Joel, you should perfect the art of fleeing, part of me feels a bit uncomfortable because I'm like, only cowards flee. Like, I want to be the hero. You know, I don't want to flee. But you know what? In some cases, the wisest thing, the non-crazy thing to do is to flee. Let me give you a few examples, right? I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or TV show and there's a bomb that's about to go off. Or, or maybe you've seen a TV show. One of my favorite is there's a herd of zombies. Like, in, in that moment when there's a bomb or a herd of zombies, what do people do? They flee. doesn't matter if you're the geek or the general, you flee. Like, the brave thing to do, it doesn't matter. It, it's the best thing to do is to flee. Which begs the question, why do people flee in those moments but don't flee in other moments? Well, I think it's simple. You see, when you're in the face of a bomb that's about to go off or you're in the face of a herd of zombies, you know that you can't fix that problem. You know that that danger is beyond your ability to fight it. And so you know that the wisest thing to do is to flee and that you'd be crazy if you were to stick around and try and fight against it. If you think about that concept and then apply it to here in this passage, it makes you think through. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, look, flee from these false teachers. Flee from these people who have a love for money. The reason why he's saying that is this is not a danger that you can flirt with. He's saying that this danger is like a bomb that's about to go off. This danger is like those false herd of zombies that you cannot defeat. You may think that you're a bomb expert or maybe that you're Rick from The Walking Dead, but the truth is, is you're not. And the truth is, you need to understand the danger that is in front of you. You know, he's saying, flee from the arrogance, the ignorance, and the unhealthy conflict of these false teachers. Flee from their love for money. Flee. Don't be lured into it. Don't be lured into the traps, temptations, and griefs, but flee. But flee. Which begs the question for us. What are the things in our life do we need to flee from? Maybe for us, it may not be false teachers, though that may be the case. Maybe for some of us, we need to make sure that we do not buy certain books, listen to certain podcasts, share certain articles, that we flee from guys and and girls who just have got teaching that's away from the gospel and is false teaching. But throughout the Bible, in particular, the Apostle Paul talks about this fleeing sort of language for multiple different things. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that we had to flee from idolatry. In 2 2 Timothy 2, he says we had to flee from the evil desires of our youth. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says we had to flee from sexual immorality. So let me ask this question. What do we need to flee from as we try to fight for our faith? What are dangers which we're flirting with, which we think, nah, we can deal with this, when if we actually care about our faith, we'd flee from? Because the truth is, if we want to fight for our faith and not suffer a shipwreck in regards to it, when we need to learn how to flee. We need to learn how to flee. That's the first instruction on how to fight. The second instruction on how to fight is pursue. Is pursue. In verse 11, he says this, But you, men of God, flee all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You know, what he basically says here is, you know, pursue Christ-like character. You know, when he says he pursue righteousness and godliness, he's not talking about positional righteousness, but he's talking about moral righteousness. In other words, he's saying, pursue a godly life. Pursue a godly life. Be, be the opposite, basically, of these false teachers who are ungodly, who are unrighteous, who lack love, endurance, and gentleness, but instead pursue these things. As I've been reflecting on, on this uh, passage this week, you know, I've really related to that word pursue. 
you know, because like that word pursue, it implies consistent effort. It's not just like a once-off, yep, I'm done, got godliness. But you know, it actually, it takes some work, it takes some sweat. Like I, I sort of understand this as I've been reflecting and thinking about what it means to pursue faith, love, endurance, godliness, gentleness. Like honestly, I love all of you in this room and, and, and my hope is you love each other as well. But if we're all honest, on a Sunday evening, it, it takes work, it takes sweat to love one another. You know, it, it takes work to consistently be here and to care for one another, to pray for one another. You know, if I think of my boys, I love them to death, but it takes work, it takes some sweat for me to be gentle with them. Especially when they ask me, when's Christmas? About 20 times a day. Like, it, it takes gentleness, it, it takes some work to do these sort of things. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us here that you need to pursue, it's a constant effort. I think sometimes we can, get, can forget that this Christian faith that we have, it requires a pursuit if we want to obtain godliness. If we want to fight the good fight of the faith, then we need to sweat, require some effort, not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. And so church, can I ask us, how are we going at this pursuit for godliness? You know, I don't know about you, but as I try and reflect on this year, I'm trying to reflect and think through, how did I go at pursuing these things? As I think about next year, 2017, you know, my New Year's resolutions or goals for the next year, it makes me think through, how am I going to pursue these things? Because if I want to fight for my faith, then I need to pursue, just like Paul tells us to. Second thing, pursue. Third thing, take hold. In verse 12, he says here, take hold of the eternal life which you accord when you made your good confession. Now, this verse is a bit tricky. You might be thinking, how do I take hold of eternal life? Isn't eternal life a gift given to me through faith in Jesus? And yes, it is. So how do you take hold of this? Well, the Apostle Paul sort of explains to us what he means by this in verse 19. And I'll read to you verse 19 in a second, but just before I do, in verse 19, he's starting to talk about rich Christians. We'll get to these guys later on, but this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 19. He says, In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold, same words there, of the life that is truly life. We'll talk about this later on, but the Apostle Paul encourages the rich to lay treasures in heaven rather than earth. In other words, he's saying to them, live differently now in light of the future. Live differently now in light of the future. I don't know if this is something because maybe I'm young, but I think I see this in my friends as well. But I think sometimes we can think of, uh, I guess, the afterlife or heaven that is to come. We can sort of think of it like super. You know when you're young, and you, like you think about super, you get a super account, you, your employees put money into it, and you don't really think about it. Like it doesn't really change how you live unless like you really invest some money in there, and then you're like you're really unique. But majority of it's like, nah, can't be bothered, don't want to worry about it until I'm like 50, 60 years old, and then I'll worry about super. I think sometimes we can think of heaven in the same sort of light. We think oh, I'll worry about that when I get old, and I'll think about it then. The Apostle Paul he's saying no, take hold of this reality. Live differently now in light of the future. Have a new time perspective, unlike everyone else in this world. Think about the future. Think about eternal life and how it should shape your life now. Diane Van Deren is probably one of the greatest ultra runners in the world. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. An ultra runner, you're like, what's that? It's someone that can run anything more than a marathon. So it's like, they're pretty good at running. Uh, and majority of ultra runs are like hundreds of kilometers, right? Like it's a long, long run. 
Uh, this woman, like I said, is one of the best. She's about 50 now, so she's a bit older, but still keeps on running because she's a machine. Uh, she's in, been in some races. I'll give you one, a few of them, two of them. One of them was called the Canadian Death Race, which I think is the best name for a race. Uh, the second thing uh, race she was a part of, this is probably her most famous victory, is known as the Yukon Arctic Race. Um, this is a race that I think goes for 700 kilometers in freezing cold conditions. I think it was like minus 50 degrees, uh, not Celsius, but Fahrenheit. But she even said that, I've listened to this podcast, that her shoes were frozen to her feet as she was going for this run. And on this run, for the first 150 kilometers, she ran with no water. Like, this woman is insane. She can just keep on running. And the reason why she's able to endure, the reason why she was able to run so far is because she has a unique perception of time. A unique perception of time. You see, for 17 years, Diane actually suffered um, epileptic seizures. And as a result, she needed to get an operation, because if she didn't, she would die. She had this operation in 1997, where the doctors took out a kiwi-sized fruit part of her brain, and the results of that operation meant that Diane has terrible understanding of time and terrible understanding of direction. And so what that means is she can run for hours and it may feel like seconds for her. She can just keep on running, keep on running. You see, she has a different perspective of time and it allows her to endure when it comes to running. You see, I think as Christians, we need to have a different understanding of time as well. We need to take hold of the eternal life that is to come and that is to shape our present now. It's to shape how we are to live. See, if we want to fight for our faith in Jesus, we need to take hold of the eternal life that is to come. We need to live differently in light of the future. And so, how do we fight for our faith? What are the fighting instructions from the Apostle Paul? Well, he says here, he says, flee, he says, pursue, and he says, take hold. He says, take hold. But you know what? The Apostle Paul, he's a smart man, and he knows that when it comes to getting into a fight, you need to have instructions on how to fight, but you also need to have motivations to keep or reasons for you to keep on fighting, especially when it gets tough. And so that's what the Apostle Paul teaches us here, the motivations of why we keep on fighting. And we see this in verse 12 to 16. Let me read to you verse 12, where we learn the first motivation as to why we should keep on fighting. So the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, the first reason the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy for him to keep on fighting is his confession, is his confession. Now, most likely, this probably was Timothy's baptism. So as he confessed at his baptism that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You see, the Apostle Paul says to him, as you're fighting this fight, when you're going through tough times and you're suffering, remember your confession. Remember when you declared to follow Jesus and he was your Lord and King. You know, maybe if you think of, uh, I guess, uh, a couple who's um, married and is, struck, and is struggling, one thing that can be helpful for them is to, is to remember the day they were married and to remember the vows that they promised to one another to, to keep them enduring and persevering through the difficulty that they're going through. You know, Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He says, one motivation, one thing that keeps you made of it is remember the confession you made. Remember that declaration. For us, it could be the time we're baptized or maybe it could be a time when we entered an altar call. Or maybe it could be a time when we were younger and we prayed with our parents. But remember that. Remember that. Because it can help you to keep on fighting the good fight. So that's the first motivation. The second motivation is in verses 13 to 14. Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He says, In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, 
who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the first motivation is Timothy's confession or our confession, the second motivation is Jesus' confession. Is Jesus' confession. You see, in, in this passage, what he's trying to say is if you want to have motivation to keep on fighting for your faith, remember the, the subject, the, the, remember the object, sorry, of your faith. Remember Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Remember how he was at, with Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate asked him, are you a king? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember how Jesus went to the cross and he proclaimed the truth for the sake of you and I. Like, remember how Jesus perfectly fought for you and I. Remember how he fled from temptation. Remember how he pursued righteousness. And remember how he took hold of eternal life to the point that he died so that you and I may live. As we think of Jesus and what he did, we need to think that firstly, he's our example. He's someone that fled, he's someone that pursued, he's someone who took hold. But he's also our substitute. He's someone that fought perfectly on our behalf so that when we flawlessly, I mean, not flawlessly, when we flaw, are flawed in our fight, remember that Jesus did it on our behalf perfectly. And the third thing is, remember he's our victor. Remember that he conquered Satan's sin and death so that we can continue to fight sin now. This is the Apostle Paul, he says here, for second motivation, look to Jesus, look to his confession, look to his perfect pursuit, look to how he fled from things. Let's now look at the third motivation. In verse 15 to 16, Apostle Paul says this, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Third motivation is this. If the first one is our confession, second one is Jesus' confession, the third one is God's glory. Is God's glory. A lot of you know this, but I, um, when I was younger, a teenager, I used to be into computer games. Uh, so I was the, the geek, not the general in that previous uh, illustration. Uh, and when I used to play these computer games, one of my favorite was a World War I or World War II computer games. And so there was the Russians, the Nazis, the Allies. Uh, and I'll always remember this one game I played, because whenever you played as the Russians, before they'd go into this battle, they'd always scream out, like, for the motherland. And they'd always, like, yell it out as loud as they could, and then they'd just get slaughtered. Um, I'll never forget that because it just made me realize that they fought for something that was beyond themselves. Like they fought for glory, but it wasn't for their glory, but it was for their country's glory. You know, I think every single day a lot of us do things for glory. If you think of sportsmen or sportswomen, like they do things for glory. You know, for World Cup glory or for Wimbledon glory or, or I don't know, for the NRL grand final glory. People do things for the glory that comes. And people also do things for glory that is beyond themselves, such as the Russians. And you know what's interesting as a Christian is we are motivated to keep on fighting for glory as well. And the truth is, it's not our glory though, it is God's glory. God who deserves the glory, God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable lights. That is the reason why you keep on fighting, because it brings you joy when you bring Him glory. In Bible study this week, we'll have a look at this passage, and someone made a really good observation about how it says here that uh, God, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. So you think of how God is incredibly holy, incredibly magnificent, and, and He's worthy of our praise and our glory, but at the same time, He's a bit unrelatable. Like, how can we praise Him if we don't fully get Him or we can't see Him? 
You know what's the beautiful thing about God, though, is despite the fact that he deserves ultimate glory and shouldn't be anywhere near us, he then sends his son Jesus, who humbles himself to be a baby and then a man, so that we can approach God. And so we can praise him and glorify him forevermore. God's glory is what motivates us to keep on fighting. Because he deserves the glory and it brings us joy to give him glory. It brings us joy to give him glory. So, what have we learned so far? The Apostle Paul, he's talked about instructions on how to fight. He's talked about motivations as to why we fight. And then thirdly, he gives us an example of what it looks like to fight the good fight of the faith. And specifically, this example is about Christians who are actually rich. Which is a bit unique, but it's quite helpful. Let me read to you verse 17. Apostle Paul says this, he says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, if this is an example of what it looks like to fight the good fight of the faith, then you need to think through, okay, how do these rich Christians need to flee? How do they need to pursue? And how do they need to take hold? And here, straight away, the Apostle Paul says that those who are rich, Christians who are rich, are to flee from arrogance, and they're flee, out of flee from putting their hope in wealth. Firstly, they're to flee from arrogance. Arrogant, it's so easy to be arrogant when you have money. Like, like you don't need to rely on other people because so, you've got the finances. And you can compare yourself with other people all the time. Like, I have more money, so therefore I'm probably wiser than the person who doesn't. I have a better job, so therefore I'm smarter than the people around me. Like, the, the comparison game just goes on and on and on. You know, as people who live in a wealthy country and people who are wealthy, we need to take this passage seriously and think through, are we arrogant with our wealth? Do we think, oh, I live in a good suburb, therefore, you know, I'm a little bit better than those who don't? Do we think, I drive this car, therefore, I'm a bit wiser in how I use my finances compared to other people? Um, my uh, father, he's not a Christian, owns a BMW, and uh, every now and then I get to drive it, very rarely. Um, but when I do, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, as I drive a BMW around Wollongong, I start to feel like, yeah, like... Like, I'm, I'm superior. Like, it's not even my car, and I start to feel that way. Like, I feel like it's so tempting when you have money to be arrogant about it. You know, and the Apostle Paul here, he says, flee from that arrogance. Like I said last week, you know, whatever wealth you have is a gift from God. It's not something that you're entitled to. You're not someone special, but God has blessed you or given you whatever wealth you have. Be thankful for that. The Apostle Paul says, flee from that arrogance if you have money. But then secondly, he says also, flee from putting your hope in that wealth. I reckon once again, if you have money, it's easy to feel secure. You know, it's easy to feel like you have life in control. You know, if you have sick, then you can just pay for medical expenses. You know, if things go wrong, you have the money to, to look after yourself. The truth is, it's just like, it's all fleeting. And the truth is, is within like seconds, you can lose it all. Apostle Paul says, flee from putting your hope in wealth. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Let me read on to what he actually tells these guys, the rich, to pursue. Verse 18, he says this to the rich Christians. He says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. I love this verse because it's almost like the Apostle Paul thinks that uh, the rich Christians like, are not going to listen to him. And so he just like, emphatically makes his point really clear. And he says it three times. He says, like, Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and then to be generous and willing to share. It's almost like he's like, look, I know you're going to get this. So let me make this quite clear. I want you to do good. 
I want you to do good. I want you to be generous. I want you to be helpful to people and willing to share. Um, there's one guy called uh, David Columbro who used to be at our church. He's not at our church anymore. You may know him or maybe you don't know him. Uh, but when I met him this year, I was really encouraged by him and I reckon how he actually fulfilled this verse. You know, like he wasn't incredibly rich, but he, you know, I think he had a good, well-paying job. He was actually our treasurer for a little bit of time. And I reckon he was one of the most generous people I've ever come across. You know, there'd be times where he would pay for 6 p.m. dinner and not even tell anyone about it. He was someone that's constantly supporting charities. Like even right now, I have this, he posted this thing of cracking eggs over his head and he tagged me to be the next person to do it. And I'm yet to do it. So now I have to crack an egg on my face. Like he does this all the time. And I think it's because he does good with his money. He's a generous person. He was even very generous to me as a pastor. But I, I know buying me coffee or doing things. I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm just giving you an example of what he was like. You know, there's many people like this in our congregation who do this. And I want to encourage you to keep on doing it. But it's a challenge for us. Do we see our money as what is ours or is it something that helps us to do good? To do good. See, the, the rich, they're to flee from arrogance and their hope in God and they're to do good. They're to pursue righteousness and godly living. And then thirdly, they're to take hold. Verse 19, he says this, In this way they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Once again, I love this verse. It's almost like he's speaking to the rich Christians and he uses financial language. You know, it's like he's saying to them, you lay treasures in heaven. He's like saying you'll have a better return in heaven compared to your five-year, you know, interest-free loan or whatever it is. Like, it's going to be better. Like, I love the sort of language he uses. And I love how he says that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You see, I reckon if you have money, you think, you know, I know what life's about. It's about entertainment. It's about pleasure. It's about comfort. Apostle Paul's like, no, it's about Jesus. That's where we get life to the full and pleasures forevermore if you hold on to eternal life that is to come. One of my favorite authors is a guy called C.S. Lewis, um, really smart guy. Um, maybe you've heard of him. He's written a few books. Uh, in his book called The Weight of Glory, he writes this, and I think it's a really helpful quote when it comes to taking hold of eternal life. He says this, he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer at a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased." Like, I love this quote. It's just like Apostle Paul. He's saying, grab onto life that is truly life. Do not, be, do not be distracted by what is life in this world. You see, in Apostle Paul, in this passage, he says to us, fight the good fight of the faith. He gives us instructions on how do we do that. Flee, pursue, take hold. He helps us have motivations to keep on fighting. As he says, remember your confession, Jesus' confession and God's glory. And then he gives us a practical example of what it looks like to fight the good fight of the faith. Look, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't have faith, can I encourage you to start? Can I point out to you that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Can I encourage you to come next week or to the Christmas Eve service and to learn about how that King arrives as a humble baby? 
And if you are a Christian, then can I remind you or can I get you to reflect on this book with me and understand this, that when it comes to this year coming or the years after that, there's one or two options. Number one, you're either going to be strengthened in your faith as you fight for it, or number two, you're going to suffer shipwreck in regards to it. Can I encourage you like the Apostle Paul does to Timothy at the end of this chapter? He says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Guard the gospel. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas. Flee, in other words, of the ideas that is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. May remember Jesus, who's our example, who's our substitute and our victor, who we have our faith in. And may we be strengthened each day. How about I pray to close? Father God, we want to thank you so much for the book of 1 Timothy. Lord, we thank you for how it is a hard-hitting book, one that is practical, one that is true. And Lord, as followers of Jesus, Lord, we want to be strengthened in our faith. We do not want to suffer shipwreck in regards to it. Because Lord, we love Jesus and we want to bring you glory. And we know that this brings us ultimate joy and ultimate life in following you. Lord, please be with us as we seek to know more about you each week, each day, each year. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.